0: you're listening to the sojourn church new albany sermon series respond following the lord of life in this series from the gospel of matthew we learn to be grounded in the presence promises and power of jesus finding faith to follow the lord of life as he makes all things new again good morning my name is sarah and i'm a deacon here we're so glad to have you this morning you can follow along with today's reading in your bulletin or on the Sojourn app, on the back of your bulletin, you will find some special events coming up, like Trunk or Treat today. Who's excited? You're excited? Okay. (laughs) Also, after the service, you can visit the table in the lobby and learn how you can help by donating gifts to give families in our community a dignified Christmas shopping experience. Now let's hear the word of the Lord together. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you all. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, it's a big day in the life of our church. Um, every Sunday's big because Jesus is alive. Amen. Right? Mm-hmm. Amen. Three of you like that. Uh, but it's also Trunk or Treat. And uh, if you don't know the story behind Trunk or Treat, we've talked about it over the last few weeks. Uh, talk to somebody who seems more excited than you, maybe, and they'll tell you, help explain why we do trunk or treat the story behind it. And I just wanted to give you one principle for tonight and one lesson we learned last year that we need to do better on as a church. The first principle, we say this internally all the time, everything we do communicates something, uh, intentionally or not. You know this in your life when someone did something that really offended you and you talked to them and they said, I didn't mean it like that, right? But there was something that communicated that. So there's going to be, as far, I, I don't really know, probably 1,500, 2,000 people are going to come tonight. It's crazy. It's our largest thing of the year. So this will be all kinds of people. This will be their first experience of our church. Uh, but to a bigger extent, we're hoping that this is an experience of the kingdom of God for them. Uh, this place is an outpost of God's kingdom, pushing back the darkness with the light of Christ. And that's what we want to be communicating in the way we interact with people, the way we love people, the way we show hospitality. So as you guys come tonight, I just want you to be thinking, everything we do communicates something. So let's be intentional about what are we communicating. True things about God, true things about our family in this church, and go figure out what that means. Do something beautiful, wonderful to surprise and delight somebody. Uh, The practical maybe lesson from that. Here's an example of everything we do communicating something. Y'all, if you were here last year, you know that line? The line that comes up Thomas Street, down Eakin Street, wraps around up Silver Street, and we're trying to make the flow go well. We got some fun ideas for the line this year. Uh, But last year, we're holding our neighbors off, and there's families from our church going through the lines. What might that communicate to people? That's weird, right? Well, why do they get to go through there? And we don't want someone's first experience of our church to feel like we're saying, we're going to go before you. And that just feels weird. So if you're serving, if you've got a trunk, and we've got a lot of trunks, so there's going to be a lot of families and a lot of kids running around, there's going to be plenty of candy, still half off at Kroger, feels like stealing. I bought, it feels like stealing, you guys. So I would go load up if you haven't. Uh, If you don't have a trunk, you can go buy a bunch of candy and just give it to the trunks. It'll find its way into the mouths of children. There's plenty of candy, and there'll be plenty of time for all the kids to go through the line. Uh, we just want to make sure that we don't start going before our neighbors go. Does that make sense? We all on board? Amen? All right. And it's at four o'clock t- today. If you uh, we bump the time up because we've had creepy in the dark trunk retreat the last few years, which that gets weird, and we didn't want to spend the money on gigantic floodlights or whatever. So four o'clock, four to six, come. Let's have some fun. Um, That got me thinking about holidays, and it got me thinking about Christmas, which is the best holiday, uh, and it's coming up. Anybody else got their Christmas music going yet? I'll pray for y'all. I'm just counting down the days to get my Christmas houses out. Uh, Got my Department 56 Dickens Village collection about to be unleashed on the world. Uh, But it got me wondering, um, have, have you ever wondered why we wrap Christmas presents? I'd never in my life thought about that. Until a week ago, and then I was like, "That's so weird. Why do we wrap? Why do we wrap Christmas presents or presents anyway? Uh, maybe to think about it from another direction. Have, has, <laughs> have you ever been a gift with no wrapping on it, or it's like in a Walmart bag, like they just bought it and they? It's the same. Maybe it's the same gift, uh, but there's no wrapping on it. Doesn't it feel somehow less special?" feel a little funny maybe. You're not maybe exactly sure why because you don't want to be rude and then get mad because they're giving you a gift, but it just feels kind of funny. Like everything we do communicates something. What's the difference in what's being communicated to the gift receiver when it's been wrapped versus when it's been not wrapped? The wrapped present communicates something. Um, Think about how you felt uh, I've heard about some families that don't put out any Christmas presents until Christmas Eve, which I would have a hard time with that as a child. Because um, we would get, it's like day by day, uh, where it'd be a one more present or a second present. And when you see the present under the tree and you're not allowed to touch it, at least in my family, you weren't allowed to touch it, but you could look at it. And we were, you know, like private investigators staring at the box. It's square. It's bigger than a shoe box, but it's, smaller than a millennium falcon lego set or what you know and you're trying to guess what could it be the the wrapping of it it builds anticipation and longing excitement the old testament is filled with wrapping paper you know there's a present you get an idea of the shape of something that is to come it's not perfectly clear but it's meant to build this kind of anticipation, to give us contours and an idea of what God was up to and who this coming one would be like. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in in many ways, are the wrapping paper of the Old Testament being taken away so that the gift of God could come through. And so far in Matthew, we're, we're reaching a real turning point as we come into chapter 11. So far, we've learned about how Jesus was born in the Christmas stories. We saw the power of his word in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the order that we've gone through here in Matthew chapters 1 through 11 so far. So his birth in the Christmas stories, the power of his word in the Sermon on the Mount, the power of his work in the healing miracles of Matthew chapters 8 and 9. And then the last two weeks, we have saw the plan for his mission in chapter 10, how his people would go out into the world. And now... Matthew is concluding this first major section of his gospel, and if you haven't been here since week one, it's in all likelihood Matthew spent 30 years working on this book that we have, the gospel of Matthew. It's an absolute masterpiece. It's brilliant in its structure and the beauty of its writing, and so in chapter 12, there's a transition that happens. So Matthew is concluding this beautiful summary of, or this Kind of beautiful build-up of who Jesus is here in chapters 11 through 12 by giving us six pictures or portraits of who Jesus is. The present is being unwrapped, and we are seeing what does all of this mean? Who is this man? We've seen what he's done, and now we're going to start directly answering, so who is he? And we need this story. We need this story with John the Baptist that we're looking at because... It reminds us that the gift isn't always what we thought. You ever had that experience where you looked at the box for so long, you were certain you knew what it was, and you opened it up, and it was different. We haven't heard from John the Baptist in a while. Y'all maybe remember him. He baptized Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who says, follow that guy. But now John is in prison. And he sends some of his disciples to Jesus. And look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? What's going on with John's faith here? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose sandals I am unworthy to even tie. Right? He had all these huge statements about Jesus in the beginning, and now he's saying, listen, man, are you God? Or is it going to be somebody else? In the, in the church business, we call this doubt. You, you guys see what I'm saying? He had all this confidence in the beginning of Matthew, And now some life has happened. He's in prison, and he's like, I'm not so sure anymore. So think about what's going on with John for a second. He's been in the woods most of his life. Now he's in prison. Which, side note, if you aspire to effectiveness in the kingdom of God, or a meaningful life, or if you're the person who's really wrestling with following the will of God, or wanting some special call, just recognize John is in prison. That's how it could go for you. How many of you, when you think, I'm going to follow God and have a big, effective, meaningful life and go to prison? So John's in prison. And while he's wasting away in prison, the son of David, the eternal king of Israel who would come to bring justice to the enemies of God and establish his eternal rule forever, while John is in prison, the son of David is out in the sticks healing sick people. He should be in Rome kicking down doors. At the very least, Jesus, could you come and evaporate the guards and get me out of prison? Where's your army, Messiah? Where's your political campaign? Why is Rome still in power? What are you doing in the boonies hanging out with lepers? You got to appreciate the doubt that John has here. This is not the messiah john was expecting he started opening this present that he'd been looking for for years and years and years and he essentially is saying what kind of messiah is it this he's not even in jerusalem the city of god the holy place the religious epicenter of the world he's out in nowhere'sville hanging out with the marginalized the sick the oppressed and as far as I can tell, he's homeless. We need a story like this because to be a Christian is to have your doubts. I would just be very skeptical of any Christian that claims to not doubt or to never have doubts, especially if they're a pastor or you hear them teaching the Bible and they present themselves as having this perfect faith. I, I, I want to talk about doubt for a minute. We'll get to Jesus' response to John, to the question that John asks him later, but Jesus says something to John's disciples to go tell John, and then Jesus turns and starts talking to crowds that are all, all around them. And in verse 11, he says this to the crowds. He says, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Notice he doesn't say, John started really good, but he's backslidden now. You know that guy John, he used to really get it, but unfortunately, now he's doubting. He doesn't deride John. He still speaks highly of him. And one of the lessons there is, and you've got to hear this, doubt does not disqualify you from the kingdom of God. Some of you face a hard season of life, Something new happens, something unexpected happens, or you just go through a phase like spiritual puberty where it feels like things are changing and you feel disoriented and and you got to know doubt does not disqualify you from the kingdom of God, from the story of God, from life with God. Now, to the under 40 crowd in here, that doesn't mean we should celebrate doubt or doubt isn't a virtue. We shouldn't look at doubt as the new hallmark of Christian maturity where it's like, I just got so much doubt, man, keeping it real, Oh, you know, like... We're not saying doubt is this wonderful thing that should be celebrated. We're so happy that we have doubts. But we should be a people who can look at doubt and say, "I get it. I understand why you would doubt." John, Jesus still speaks highly of John here. So if, if you're doubting this morning, maybe give yourself a little grace to acknowledge this is normal, this is understandable. You know, the things that Christianity will lead you to believe, there's some of them that, I'll be honest, don't make much sense. And I got yelled at in seminary one time because I said the Trinity was confusing. Uh, so three, things are, three people are one person is three people is one person. I believe that, and I would die before I disagreed with that. I don't totally get it. There's confusing, confusing things here. What John does really well, though, is he brought his doubts to Jesus. You understand that? Can you see that? He sees this guy doing something that he didn't expect and was confusing to him. And so he went to the man to get clarity. He didn't bring his doubts to the crowds or to the religious elite or the would-be revolutionaries. Meaning, with his doubt, his first move wasn't to get on Google and search for something. When you doubt, it's not an if you doubt question, unless you're totally lying to yourself. When you doubt, do what John did. Bring your doubts to Jesus. Bring your doubts to people who've been with Jesus, people who walk with Jesus. Be honest and direct with Jesus. You don't have to hide your doubts from him. So, let's look at how Jesus responds to the doubt itself, the question that John asked. So in verse 4, Jesus told the disciples of John, he says, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. So it's important that Matthew is saying this at this point in Matthew. What have you heard? He's referring to the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5 and 5 through 7. Tell them what you heard me say in the Sermon on the Mount, and then what you have seen. Tell him about the miracles. What miracles? Chapters 8 through 9. Tell him what you have heard and what you have seen. And then he pulls a line from John's playbook. I think Jesus is doing something very, very clever here. He says, The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Listen to my words. Look at my works. And Jesus uses language that John would have caught immediately. I mean, John probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. Certainly the book of Isaiah memorized. If he saw himself as the forerunner of Jesus, the one coming to announce his coming. Uh, If you're familiar, if you spent the least bit of time in the Old Testament, these words should ring out like a bell to you. John had been looking at the wrapping paper his whole life, He knew the promises. He knew the prophecies of the coming one. And so Jesus is referencing several passages from Isaiah. Words and phrases that would have been crystal clear announcements to John. Here's just one example. Isaiah 35 verses 4 through 5. We get this prophecy. Your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. I think I think maybe John just had a hard time seeing Jesus after all these years of expectation. And put that, put that verse back up, the Isaiah verse. And if you read the first part of this, and you're living under oppression, and you've got a foreign government ruling, that might sound a bit more attractive than the second half of the verse. I get why John might have just kind of camped out in verse 4 there. He'd come to destroy your enemies. John has all of these words memorized, hidden in his heart. They've shaped his whole life. And so Jesus says, look at my words, look at my works. And then he uses language that would have meant something particularly to John. He's powerfully and personally saying to John, I am the coming one. I am the Messiah. Look at what I've said. Look at what I've done This is what was promised. I am the one you've been waiting for. Jesus understands something that John missed. The heart of God is revealed in a a unique and, for me at least, frankly, an uncomfortable way here. We see it in the climax of the list that Jesus gave. Tell him what you've seen and what you've heard. And then he gives this list of things that have happened. So, the high water mark. The climax isn't sight to the blind, it's not hearing being given to the deaf, or even raising the dead, which, that seems like a big one to me. The dead have been brought back to life. No, what is the climax that Jesus says of his ministry, the highest evidence that he is the coming one? He says, I've preached the gospel to poor people. The good news has been proclaimed to the poor. This is a significant theme through the book of Isaiah. Jesus says, maybe the clearest evidence that I am the coming one is not that I've raised the dead or healed these people or overthrown a government. It's that I've preached the good news to the poor. Yes, Jesus is a warrior. Yes, he will bring his enemies under his feet one day. But this coming brought with it first compassion and healing and salvation. He didn't come with the flaming sword of God's judgment. He came with a personalized invitation to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. He was with the poor. He was with the oppressed. He was with the marginalized. He was with the suffering. He was not with the powerful or the politicians. He didn't come to overthrow a government. He came to seek and to save what was lost. This first coming was not the conquering king John expected. And it caused him to doubt. It was the suffering servant that had been promised. The one who would heal, comfort, and set free. Who would carry our burdens, our sin and suffering, and conquer our ultimate enemy, death itself. So, what do you do with a messiah like this. This is our first picture of Jesus here in Matthew 11. He is the coming one. He is the one who was promised. And you know the the simplest response when you see this gift is simply to open it, to receive it. Some of you think you know what you want or need in life. And some of you've got real strong plans about what you're going to do and I would just remind you that belief is what has brought you here. Whatever circumstances going on in your life, whatever situations you're facing, maybe not all of that, but some of that has come from you leaning on your own understanding. You thinking that you know what's best for you, and maybe you've stumbled your way into a church because you're totally just kind of spent, not sure what to do. If that's you, if you're willing to admit the way you're being a you is not working, I would invite you to receive Christ. Receive the coming one. Call him Lord. Place your faith in him. He didn't come to judge you. He came to heal you. He came to save you. He came to set you free. Teach him a better way. A lot of us, though, we've already made that move. We've said those things. Jesus is Lord. I believe he is the coming one. So what do we do with that kind of Messiah, if we've already placed our our trust in him, to a degree at least. Well, let's think about Christmas a little more. Who amongst you opened a gift on Christmas and then just left it alone? Wouldn't that be weird? Nobody does that. You tear open the instructions and you start putting the Legos together. You, You put the training wheels on the bike and you go start riding the bike. You opened the gift, you learned what it did, and you used it. So for us, that means we have to, yes, receive Christ. But it means we also have to learn what He's like and walk with Him. We have to use the gift. We have to walk in relationship and fellowship with Him. And part of what this means for us, and I think this is a particular invitation to our church, you have to learn to receive Jesus as He is, not as you would like Him to be or as you think He should be. You have to go to his words and his works, just like John did. Listen to what he said, look at what he did. And I'll just tell you, if the words and works of Jesus never confront you or make you feel uncomfortable, if you never like, I don't think I would do it that way, I'm not sure why he's doing that. Ah, this feels uncomfortable that he said this to me, or that he said this to that person. If Jesus's words and works never confront you, you're you're following a superhero version of yourself, not Jesus. Do you not realize that the God of the universe, who holds all things together by the power of his word every moment, might be smarter than you? He, the eternal, all-knowing God might see things you cannot see. Some of us, it's like we got a bicycle for Christmas. Christmas. And we're like, oh my gosh, there's butterflies on the seat, and we just pick up the seat and we just hold on to the seat. It's like this is so great, because you—it's like the—it's just—it's the guy in community group who's like, why don't we study Romans more? It's because there's 65 other books in the Bible, but this is the one I like the most. I've been doing a 15-year devotional in Romans. It's like that's good. We like Romans is part of the Bible. We've preached through it as a church. And, you know, if Jesus tarries another 30 or 40 years, we'll probably preach through it again. But there's other things. Some of us only want to look at Jesus in the way he deals with the poor. Some of us only want to look at Jesus as the eternal judge or only this or only that. And it's you can't do that and see a whole Christ. You can't do that and receive the fullness of the gift that he's given to us. So we don't come to the scriptures and try to decide what is jesus like or who is this coming one we come in and say teach me what it is we don't impose who christ is on the scriptures or or you know like thomas jefferson who did some good stuff and a whole lot of awful stuff but who went through and cut out the parts of the bible he didn't like listen john thought he knew what was coming but he didn't see the whole picture this didn't kick him out of the kingdom of god or get him in trouble with jesus What I'm trying to help you believe is that all of us start biased. All of us come to the Bible slanted one way. As long as we refuse to believe we don't see the whole picture, or as long as we think that we can come and have like the perfectly pure reading of the Bible, if we think that we couldn't have a bias or that we couldn't miss something, we'll continue to miss the fullness of God. I just could not believe that more firmly. And I think Jesus is alluding to this right after this. In verses 18 and 19, he's talking to crowds, these same crowds again, and he's, again, he was affirming John, and this is what he says. Uh, John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see what Jesus is saying? Leave that up for a second. He's basically saying, I can't win with you people. You see what you want to see. We've all got slanted perspectives. We come with an assumption and we make a conclusion. And they do the same thing to John that they did to Jesus, just on different grounds. We have to root ourselves in the words and works of Jesus over and over and over again. What did he say? What did he do? And what is that doing to me? he concludes the section with a wonderful principle that we would do well to embrace. In verse 19, so he ends that section kind of making fun of the people who can't make up their minds. He says, wisdom is shown to be right by its results. In other words, wisdom is shown by the fruit. So just pay attention to people who have like wonderful ideologies or wonderful ideas or make claims about how to live. Just look at their life. If the life is way off than what they're professing, then I would be skeptical around there. John had doubts, but he brought them to Jesus. You see that? The fruit of his doubt, the fruit of his faith, was he brought who he was to Jesus. These guys were mad at John for one thing, mad at Jesus for another, hypocritical and inconsistent. So who's on the right track here? Who is wise? The one who came to Jesus. Words are good. We are a word church. And words matter, and we want to have the the right words. But the truth of our words will show up with our works, which is why we have to respond not just with confession, but obedience. So the first move of what do we do with who is this Messiah? Receive him. Confess he is Lord. And then we open and use the gift by following him. Notice Jesus never walks up to somebody and says, Believe in me! What does he say? follow me. He doesn't say, believe this thing I'm telling you. He says, follow me. Coming to Jesus and following Jesus, this is how we open the gift. We receive someone we won't fully understand. We follow someone we won't fully understand who perhaps does things that we wouldn't. We follow him knowing it will often feel a bit upside down. Because again, what did the coming one do? He laid his life down. He didn't lift it up. He went to the sticks, not to the sanctuaries. He went to the poor, not the palaces. And he said, "Follow me." So to try to get real simple, the implications of this are significant. They're huge. Um, and sometimes we can get a bit grandiose. So I just want to think about trunk or treat real quick. Anybody remember Chad Lewis? Chad Lewis is a pastor at Sojourn East. He was my pastor for a long time. I cried in his office like a baby for a few years. He took care of me. He's one of my favorite humans in the whole world. And I remember one time he said to me, because I was like, why do we do all these things? or Whatever. And he was like, don't underestimate the power of a hot dog given in the name of Jesus. It sounds kind of silly, but often we underestimate the power of small things done for the sake of Christ. Often, we underestimate the power of putting our hands to work on the margins. Some of you know, uh, my wife, Allison, Bobby, and Kristen, we went to France a couple of weeks ago to visit our missionaries. Um, And we were standing beside the ruins of a church. There was a foundation that had been built in 150 AD. That's a wild experience. And I was like, ruins, cool. And Bobby, who can sometimes be a little more perspective, Um, uh, aware of what's actually happening where I'm like off thinking about shiny ideas Uh, Bobby leaned over and he said so let me get this straight a Middle Eastern homeless teacher was executed and a hundred years later people in France are worshipping him see how weird that is and you know before the church conspiracy theorists can have their way there was no pope There were no impressive people who were Christians. There was no centralized power. And the gospel had traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles and changed multiple languages. Now people in France are worshiping a Middle Eastern carpenter who was executed. No armies, no royalty, No rulers, no popes, no earthly powers. What happened? The words of Jesus were proclaimed and the works of Jesus were imitated and it changed the world. What faith do you have and what would you be willing to do with it? What if you had faith to believe that we didn't have to do something grandiose and world-changing, that maybe giving a hot dog to a stranger in the name of Jesus might do some good. Maybe we would meet someone new. Maybe tonight you'd listen to someone's story. Maybe tonight you would come and spend just a little bit of time thinking about how you could make someone feel welcome, give them the gift of hospitality and friendship. What might it be? Jesus invites us to root ourselves in his word and his work, not through grandiose observations of power and prestige, but through something incredibly ordinary. The call to return to Christ, to root ourselves in his presence, what to do with our doubt, involves the most ordinary things of life. So we remember the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. He thanked God for it and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is a sacred meal for us. And if you don't believe what it represents, just respect our belief and stay in your seats. If, if you are a Christian, this is our return to the words and works of Jesus, the presence of Christ, when we remember his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. Our tradition is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. Uh, there'll be stations in the back and the front, and there'll be a gluten-free station to my left, your right. I'll pray for us and then... Christians, let's come return ourselves to Christ again.
0: Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.